Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Duke Phillips IV. Duke is the Chief Operating Officer of Ranchlands, a Colorado-based ranching and ranch management company that's widely celebrated for its deep conservation ethic. Duke oversees all operations across Ranchlands properties, which include the renowned 87,000-acre Chico Basin Ranch and the 103,000-acre Zapata Ranch. Working closely with his father, Duke III, and his sister, Tess, Duke and his family share a commitment to long-term land stewardship, and they embody the Ranchlands philosophy of working together to live with the land. As part of a multi-generational ranching family in southeastern Colorado, Duke grew up with one foot in the ranching culture and the other in a more traditional life of school, sports, and typical childhood activities. After college, he decided to return to the family business, where he began to work his way up through the ranks to his current role of COO. Along the way, he learned lessons in leadership, humility, conservation, stockmanship, and business, many of which he shares with me during this conversation. Duke is one of the more humble and understated people I've ever met, especially when considering all that he's accomplished so early in his career. I met Duke out at the Chico, where we sat around his kitchen table and chatted, and it was a truly delightful conversation. We talked about the operations at their ranches, and we delved into some of the details around their breed of cattle called the Beefmaster. We talked about their apprentice and intern programs and why he and his family value teaching and educating both the general public and the next generation of land stewards. We talk about Duke's thoughts on leadership and the importance of being humble and calm in all situations. He also explains Ranchland's open gate policy and how that philosophy differs from some of the conventional wisdom around access to land in the West. We also talk about books, his heroes and mentors, flying helicopters, lessons learned from living and working internationally, and much, much more. Finally, I want to mention that Ranchlands will be honored at Palmer Land Trust's 10th Annual Southern Colorado Conservation Awards on October 3rd here in Colorado Springs. We'll be debuting a short film about the Phillips family that highlights some of their innovative conservation and ranching work throughout the state. If you're interested in attending, follow the link in the episode notes for more information. I guarantee it'll be an inspiring and fun evening. There's so many important lessons to be learned from this conversation with Duke. Check out the episode notes for a full list of everything we discussed. Hope you enjoy. Normally I do these things like sitting in some stuffy office or over the internet, but here we are on a massive, what is it, 88,000 acre? Yeah, 87,000 acre ranch. So maybe the first thing we could do, if you could talk a bit about Chico Basin, like where we are. Mm the the history of the ranch because okay. this place is just magical yeah it it's pretty colorful history here and and um i don't know the far back back i know but it was all homesteaded you fly over the top of this ranch and it's just um kind of it been places checkerboarded with old homesteads um from the homestead act which um as as they went broke moved out moved to town whatever it was um they they kept getting amalgamated amalgamated until it was this ranch and and now we're just shy of 90,000 acres but i think at its peak it was close to 200,000 acres oh wow so it's actually 
substantially smaller and bigger than it's ever been, um, which is kind of interesting. There's some of the ranches, like the ranch to the west, as a part of this ranch, it's an intact ranch. Um, to the east is the um, it's a DOT site where they they test trains from all over the world. Oh, okay, um, so that's about I think that's about forty thousand or fifty thousand acres that used to be a part of this ranch. So some of it's still in production. That land is very much out of production, which is unfortunate. Um, but here today we're, um, right, right over 87,000 acres. Um, it's, it's a land, it's a property where we, I've been since 1999 when my dad, um, won the lease for this property. Um, we moved here when I was, I think going into seventh grade, okay. like that, but it's the summer between sixth and seventh grade. Um, so I've spent majority of my life here now coming up on a quarter of a decade or a quarter of a century, which is Can you believe pretty it? crazy. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. But <laughs> I've, I live at headquarters, the, the heart of the ranch. I've lived in every house on the ranch now um, through the years with, with my family or single before, however it is. I've lived everywhere. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I like it here. I was a bit reticent to move here because I'm, now I am fully on call 24 hours. If, yeah. if a vehicle drives in, I don't recognize on a, um, Sunday evening or something. I I'm here. I go I go see who it is, and it's usually just a birder that forgot to check in or something like that. But um, if anyone needs anything, I'm here. I live here, so they walk over to my house, which I was a little bit reticent about um, before I moved here. But it's actually worked out really well. I, you really have a have a finger on the pulse of the whole operation, which is a cool feeling. So you mentioned people driving in and a term I've heard you guys use and your the people who work here use is open gate policy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause that, you know, in my old career selling ranches, there aren't many open gates <laughs> no. and I've had guns pulled and all. Yeah, so, people take it pretty seriously. Well, the first time, the first time I drove in here a year or two ago, I was coming around the corner. Right. <laughs> well, I know I, I came onto your property and some of your folks were hanging out on the road and I saw them. I was like, oh shit, here, here we, we go. go. <laughs> but then they were just so, they were yeah. like, Hey, how you doing? Yeah. Come we were expecting in. you. And yeah. so talk a little bit about that and yeah. how you guys came up with that idea. So I think, um, I don't know. It, it's a, uh, it is an interesting thing because traditional agriculture is very much closed doors, keep town and town and country country, um, which is completely unsustainable and puts up these walls, which are, um, prohibitive in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, so, so the thing I remember as a kid is a sign that we used to have on our front gate. Um, and that I think, I think the original idea that my dad got it from was the Lasser family of the Beefmaster cattle on it. And, and, you know, a lot of these signs you'll see down anywhere really is keep out, no trespassing yep. will be will be um, prosecuted fullest extent and they're usually full of bullet holes. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. And not observed because it just pisses people off. So it's a challenge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> especially this being state trust land. Um, it's, it's especially from out of state um, hunters. Mostly is it look on the map. It looks like state land, but it's yep. state trust land, which is private public land. If that makes any sense. We, mm -hmm. um, so it is private. Um, but the sign said, um, um, Please no trespassing. This is our home and our business. Sim simple as that. Um, that's what the Lassiter said. That's what yeah. they said. And and we had one of those um, for the first probably eight years or something like that. And we finally pulled it down. And that and that um, and something like ch please check in visitors. Please check in. Um, but from day one, it's always been open gate um, with kind of rules, so we can steer 
um, how people interact with the ranch, um, even though we want them to interact in their own way, if they're mountain bikers, hikers, birders, um, people just curious about it. So we invite the public to come out because they're a very important part of our longevity of um, my unborn kids longevity. There needs to be this kind of collaboration. And if they don't have a clue what's going on out here, how are they ever going to acknowledge it as important or see the importance of it? Um, so I think we, we did the numbers the other day. A big part of that too is an education program where we, we, we see about two to 4,000 school kids a year from kindergarten all the way up through, um, post-grad stuff. Wow. I didn't yeah. realize it was that many. It's huge. Last year was our biggest year and I think it was right over 4,000. Damn. Um, so, so you multiply that over the years we've been here. It's, it's 40 some thousand people have visited here, um, to our education program alone. The m- biggest amount would probably be the birding. Mm-hmm. Um, people come here we're, we're a hot spot during the spring and fall migratory songbird. Okay. Or that's primarily what, what it is, but people just go nuts over that stuff, which is pretty cool. And it, and it's a, it's a thing that I grew up with, um, seeing these strange people with binoculars that don't acknowledge you because there's a bird behind you. And at first you're like, man, what the hell? I waved at this person and they're in my home and they don't even acknowledge me. And <laughs> and now it's just really funny because you they're so um, passionate about these birds. You can be having a – I've had it before. I've been talking with an Audubon group or something in front of the office kind of – giving a marsh feel of why we're here and how we're grazing um, in harmony with nature and everything. And, and I'll be talking and all of a sudden the whole, the whole group shifts and they're nearly walking away from me with their binoculars <laughs> up and, and you just kind of laugh and in five minutes they come back and you, and you finish it out. But I've kind of grown up around that and I really enjoy it because it adds a, it adds a really unique color to what we're doing. Um, the, the uh, Western lifestyle is often really romanticized, um, but I think it's because a lot of people didn't experience it. You yep. see it in these Charlie Russells or read about it books, see it in John Wayne movies, however, and it's always like the really bad parts and then the really good parts triumph over uh-huh. it. And it's always exciting, a lot going on. Um, but the reality is there's a lot of mundane times in between checking fence or fixing vehicles or cleaning shops, all sure. that kind of stuff. Um so to have that public come out and interface with those people that are out here because um, they're curious about us, they're curious about birds, they're for some reason they're drawn out here to mm-hmm. to what's going on out here. I think is a really unique opportunity um, for opposite worlds to collide, which adds a lot of color and, and really makes it fun. So when you think about, I mean, you know, this is a this is a huge ranch, but throughout the West there there are huge ranches and at least in my experience, there aren't that many ranchers that open their place up. So mm-hmm. where did that mindset come from? I mean, where, did, wh- what kind of flipped the switch where you guys were like, all right, this is important to yeah. get people out here. Cause it's, I mean, I, I would imagine it, it helps, it may create a, a revenue source for you, but it's also helping the greater good because you're exposing all these people. So, so but your business is hard enough. Even if you were just raising, right. if you're just grazing cows, that's hard enough. So you add in this extra layer. Where right. does that come from the willingness to do things differently yeah i think um probably initially um with the art shows concerts everything like that it probably was financially driven originally Mm -hmm. and and keeping in mind i was um what 12 years old or something when i moved here so some of that some of the early years are a little bit gray on why and how but it's a conversation we still have so it probably started out um 
financially driven, but the reality is there's there's no money in an open gate policy whatsoever. Yeah. People come in and, and maybe pay a little money to put some fuel in a road grader. Sure. Um or upkeep cattle guards or or something like that. Because as soon as you open up your gates, if it if it rains and you don't close the ranch, usually when it rains the best birds are out here, so your roads are rutted and destroyed. So then you're <laughs> then you're negative. Um so so then it kind of transformed in into kind of I don't, not to sound weird, but it's like the save the world mentality of, of wanting to have this greater impact on a larger population, on a larger demographic. Um, and, and why I, I don't, I don't really know. It's something that I probably inherited from my dad who mm-hmm. has that kind of, um, implanted for some reason yeah. in, and, and it's the same for me. Um, cause would it be a lot easier to just shut the gates and not have to grade the roads every time we have a rain? Probably. Yeah. Um, but, but it wouldn't be as fulfilling. We, we would just be going through our motions in our little world kind of non, non contributing outside of the food chain. Whereas if, if we have all these other, um, avenues and, and, uh, points of connection, it's just such, a richer, more fulfilling experience for us and hopefully anyone else who visits. Certainly the young people coming up in our program. Well, it's definitely struck a chord. I mean, obviously just the number of people that have come out here, but then you think about you guys, social media following, and, and there's there's almost this vacuum of real and interesting and beautiful content that shows what life out here is really like. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you guys have, have nailed it. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of like you discovered this little market, this little niche market there that there's this need for It's awesome. Um, so kind of more to the, the, the hardcore ranching side of things. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys do grazing and, and maybe, maybe start by talking about the beef master breed? Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's, I've recently gotten to know some of the Lasters and, and I got a tour of, of one of their places and it's just really cool to, to learn about, I learn about that breed. Can you talk about that breed and why you guys use that? Yeah. Um, my grandfather actually ran um, beef master cattle down in Mexico. Oh really? He was down there. Yeah. I didn't so know it goes way back. Um, but it, it's a, it's a really interesting breed. Dale, Dale Lasser taught my dad homeschool down in Mexico. So they've known each other since he was in fourth grade or fifth grade, oh, wow. probably something like that. And Dale unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago on that crazy horse wreck but um still really close with both of his sons mm-hmm. do a lot of work with them um but the the beef master breeds a really interesting breed because it, it's more of an embodiment of a philosophy the lasser philosophy um as as opposed to um chasing strict numbers and colors mm-hmm. which is pretty indicative of a lot of um breeds today yep um specifically the angus um but the beef master is basically I kind of break it down into simple Darwinism. It, it is essentially survival of the fittest and letting nature, um, um, pick your, pick your cattle for you. So if you have our, our tendency and, and this really opened my eyes when I, I traveled down in Australia in 2012 and, and I loved it. I had a great experience, but, but I saw it firsthand there cause I'd grown up here where we're not like this, but very hands-on approach to nature. If, the, if they have a problem, um, with undergrowth or whatever, instead of trying to figure out how to fix it, they'll go in with like three D eights or D tens <laughs> and just blade it and start over. Um, so it's a very hands-on approach, um, to, to agriculture there, which mm-hmm. I think is probably pretty, um, 
common here as well. Yep. Um, and the cool thing about the Lasser philosophy broken down is making an creating an animal, letting nature create an animal that thrives in its natural environment. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go out and plant special feed. You don't have to feed in the winter. You don't have to inoculate your whole herd. It's just creating this ultra hardy animal that thrives in its natural environment with, within kind of this, the circle of life. So, um, broken down simply, if a beef master cow loses her calf to a coyote, chances are she's an inferior mother, um, who shouldn't have lost her, her calf to, a um, to a very small predator like yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you get rare instances where coyotes will pack up into 10, 15 animals and they, they can take down a calf for sure. And, and, but what you is what you would want is the mother cow to go and kick yeah, the shit out of the cow. Yeah, she, okay. she should use the horns we leave on her, uh -huh. um, to defend herself. And, and they do, you, you put a dog in a, in a herd of beef master cattle and, the dog better be back in the pickup or under a fence pretty quickly because they're coming after it, wow. and not not just not just the the cow whose calf is being threatened, but half the herd is coming after it. Wow. Um, so in, instead of traditionally see, seeing this coyote, this scavenger essentially as this mega predator killer, you know, killing, poisoning, eradicating the coyote, so then you're um, prairie dog population skyrockets your jackrabbit population skyrockets and you have this imbalance removing that cow and and letting one come up behind her that's not gonna have that problem and, mm -hmm. and pretty soon you have these coyotes and our cattle living in harmony we, yep. we don't lose I'm, I'm sure we do but the the number is so small that we lose to coyotes that it's it's not worth calculating wow um, if you have an animal that becomes anemic um, from an insect or or a sickness, instead of broad vaccinating that whole herd, you, we doctor that one animal and remove her from the herd because mm -hmm. something about her genetically or just about her as an individual is, is inferior and, and not going to thrive in her natural environment. So she's gone. So, so on the front end, you, if, if you're starting a herd like that, that's the other cool thing is it's not, it doesn't have to be beef masters. You can raise your cattle herd like this. Really? Um, there's no co color doesn't come into play with beef master because nature will determine a color. If there's a, if there's a, a color that's too hot in certain areas or, or whatever it works, a darker color, they'll naturally over time evolve into a lighter colored animal. Mm. Um, but there's, there's no color, um, taken into account, which is completely contrary to most of our modern cattle breeds now. Sure. Um, so that, that's beef masters in a nutshell, just a hardy, uh, moderate frame animal that thrives in their natural environment. Um, so when I was out with Alex on his place, he, he actually gave me the book, the, the Dale Lasseter uh, yeah. book and, and I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I'm super excited too. But yeah. in scan, scanning through it, there's different qualities that they're looking for. And the, the one that surprised me is they want them to be docile. Mm-hmm. Which it, and, and we were out there and you can pat them and they'll come up and they're really sweet. But then there's this other flip side where they will yeah. kick the shit out of predators. Yeah, it's, it's, um, what do they call it? Disposition and mothering ability. So oh, it's like, okay. it's like two kind of contrary things. Okay. Identifying predators and protecting themselves, but not being so kind of batshit wild that you got to jump up the fence and got it. chase you. So, so it's, it's a fine line, but you can walk into a herd of cattle once you have a trained eye and, and you can tell, just through body language, kind of the way they pick their heads up, the way 
the way they're standing, where they're standing in the herd, how they're moving, and mm -hmm. and those animals we pull right away. Because yeah. cause you don't want something wild like that. We In our cattle, we want them to be a bit rangy because we run on big spaces. Uh, we want them to be athletic and, and have that instinct to protect. But there's a fine line between those two, um, mothering ability and uh, disposition. Okay, and disposition is one of the most inheritable traits in, in cattle. So if you have a wild bull, chances are a lot of his offspring are going to be wild. So that's something we keep a close finger on. Now, every year, I mean, is there – is there kind of like a, a percentage of the herd that ends up being taken out of the gene pool or is it, do you just evaluate it on a case by case basis or maybe a combo of both? Yeah, it's, it's a combo of both. So it's a lot of people put, uh, you know, a hundred percent emphasis on your bulls, but bulls 50% of your genetics. So, yeah. Um, so we, we cull our bulls, we raise all our own bulls here. Um, the initial cull will probably end up being about 20, 25%, which okay. goes off the very obvious if it's, if it's too, too small or, or weak or, um, crooked nose, any, any kind of thing that'll happen. Um, bad feet, they get pulled off right away. And then, and then another, I think three months go by, we'll pull another 20% off until we're left with kind of our coal. And then we'll get into the, the nitpicky stuff about them, what, what we like, what we don't like, the stuff we can or can't explain. Sometimes you're just like, man, I really like that bull, but I don't know why. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's that. And then same thing for the cattle. If the cattle come in and, and she did not breed up, that's, the, that's the number one knock because that, that's, um, fertility some something happened be it her fault or not but she didn't breed up so in that program she falls out got it um something with bad feet bad udders but most of that stuff is is pretty well weeded out once those cattle get into our main herd got it. a lot of that stuff happens between ages two and three for the younger okay so if they were a hard pull um, if they had a bad eye, if they had foot rot, anything like that removes them. But most of that's removed ages two and three. And then your cow herd is, you're constantly watching it for things like mastitis, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny amount, mm -hmm. um, but it can happen. And then they're just removed like that. I mean, obviously you've been doing this since, you know, as long as you can remember, but for people who want to learn more about this, are there any books or resources that, that you would recommend that are good places to, to dig in, to get more overview? I mean, I think that last book. Yeah. If that is last a book I'd put at the very top, really? honestly. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't really know. I'd, I'd, I'd do this every day and I, I should read more about You need to write a this. book. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not an expert yet. I'm still working on it. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that I think lays the most incredible foundation because a lot of these other books and speaking generally here, but focusing on the minutia detail and, and one of the big, biggest things or the most important parts of that book is, is he says the hardest part is keeping it simple. Yeah. So you, if you go into it with a really open mind and, and very practical about mm -hmm. everything in theory, it's all easy. Yeah. 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 In theory. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the hardest part is not trying to, tweak it, make it better, 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 chasing these tiny little, tiny little things, but being happy with what you have, I guess. So I want to go back to one thing you were talking about with the, um, with living in Australia and then your dad was in Mexico as a kid. And, and then you guys mentioned this when, when I was out here a few weeks ago, that none of you, you, your dad, your sister, none of you studied ag in college. Right. And so where does this, this kind of broad mindset, how does that, how does that fit into what you're doing on a daily basis? Cause y'all are obviously doing things differently, yeah. but it's in a very, very thoughtful manner. 
And how, how have this kind of broad set of experiences shaped your, your approach to, to this business you're in? Yeah, I think a lot of it was intentional and, and speaking for myself, I think as a, as a young man is probably just wanted to be contrary. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you grow up and, and, um, I had, I guess I call it a luxury where I had the, the, um, opportunity to go to school in town, which now I couldn't dream about doing it. But back then, you know, I, I kind of grew up in two worlds, which mm-hmm. is I lived out here and this was my life, but I also lived in town and, and have done and can do, yeah. um, if need be, which is really important because someone who, um, Someone who kind of grows up in a rural community is oftentimes handicapped by growing up in that rural community unless they go out and, and see the world, mm-hmm. see the bigger world out there. Otherwise, you're kind of trapped in your shell. Same thing for someone growing up in Brooklyn and living in Brooklyn. That That's its own little island. Yep. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so having that ability from a young age of going to school in town but living and working and recreating um, – outside like i was in traveling soccer leagues i did all the stuff normal town people Mm -hmm. do but i had this whole other life kind of out here which is just a huge luxury so then i went i graduated high school and because everyone kept asking me well when are you going to go back to the ranch i'm like i'm not going back to the ranch i don't know if that's (laughs) what i want to do and and my dad was real supportive and said you know whatever whatever you want to do i'm supportive i'd love to have you come back here but no pressure Mm -hmm. said come back if if it'll be here if you want you'll have to start at this level and um and go from there but if you want to come back come back if you want to go out fully support you which is huge also because i think in ag people are like oh you want to go to school like what what am i going to do at harvest or what am i going to do at weaning and and never did i have any of that pressure which was massive and then i i graduated from fountain valley in colorado springs and and um went up to bozeman to msu and for whatever reason was going to be a range science major Mm -hmm. um took a few classes there and and just hit a brick wall because um everyone was telling me all my te- i think i i had one introductory a lab for that introductory and one other class among english and math i think were my only classes and they're saying well you can't do this and you can't do this and i'm like man not only what am i paying for yeah, here <laughs> not only have we been doing these things that you said we can't do for two generations before me um but i didn't come here to tell me what i can't do yeah. like college is supposed to, in my opinion back then and maybe i'm wrong but it's supposed to broaden your horizons and kind of like um disintegrate boundaries and show you what's out there and what you can do and i just i didn't i didn't get that maybe it was my experience in montana or with traditional ag which is most of the schools um, which is fine. It just didn't work for me. So, well, yeah, they're teaching at the middle of the bell curve because I, I had the same experience in grad school in bi- mm-hmm. business and, you know, get an MBA and they're telling you this is how you do it and you can't do it this way. But on this podcast, every business person I've talked to has done it the exact opposite of what they're yeah, teaching. It's amazing. So I was a little bit lost. I, I went up there and it was, I'd tell everyone who asked me, I went up there for the fishing is why I went <laughs> I to Bozeman. <laughs> so I stacked classes and went to class, I think two and a half days a week and fished the rest of it and got the got full use out of my fly rod while I was there, but I was only there for one semester. Um, that's a good time. Was it the yeah, fall? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, perfect time. Perfect. Get out yeah, of there. I left before it got cold <laughs> in the old Gallatin Valley. 
Well, I, I have a, an uncle that I'm really close with in Denver. Um, and he's kind of an entrepreneur, really switched on guy, um, started a lot of companies, sold a lot of companies, ran a lot of companies. And I, and I was asking him and they're tech, everything's tech that he yep. does. And I was asking him cause I was a bit lost. I'm like, man, I don't know what to study. Cause you graduate school and, and people are like, where are you going to school and what are you mm-hmm. going to study? I'm like, I don't have a clue. Cause I just, tried to do this and it sucks yeah yeah yeah. um so i asked him and and he said exactly what you're saying if i'm trying to hire a marketer i don't hire someone who studied marketing in school if i'm hiring a manager i don't hire someone who studied managing i I hire someone with a um a degree that's kind of taught them how to think which Mm -hmm. is more or less a liberal arts degree in my opinion um, or maybe they studied marketing, but they've gone out and done these jobs and, and now they've managed a couple of companies. So they have real world, world experience. They don't have these preconceived ideas of, well, I learned, I learned ranch management in school. So I know how to manage a ranch. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that really resonated with me. And to this day, I'm, I'm still very much indebted to him because I came back to DU and I have a degree in, um, textual studies creative writing essentially oh wow cool yeah, I, I started in creative writing and didn't care for the poetry so <laughs> i switched to textual studies so i could create a more flexible major skipping the poetry classes <laughs> so I do, I do have about four or five under my belt but it's not something i excel at so i i came out of school and i went to du graduated from du um I don't know how going back to Denver anymore. I'm like, man, I can't believe I lived here. And it's a different world just in that, you know, whatever, what is that? Like 10 years or something? Yeah. 2010 I graduated. It's crazy. No, it's unbelievable. I go by DU. I had a friend visiting from Australia last year and we went by there. I'm like, man, I lived here. This was my house. And somehow I did two and a half years in this house. I'm like, I don't know that I could do it again, but I'm very happy that I did it. And I'm happy that I, I get laughed at a lot when I talk, especially in agriculture. People say, what do you study? I English degree. They yeah. say, what do you want to be a teacher? And not in a formal sense. At well, all. you kind of are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you I, know, I do. And I, I get to be, um, which is cool, but in my own, in our own way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, well, that's, that's the next thing I was going to talk. That's a perfect segue because mm-hmm. the, um, the apprenticeship program you guys mm-hmm. have here. I mean, you bring in our mutual friend, <laughs> Becca Frucht, oh, yeah. who is, you know, she was a, red carpet Hollywood reporter (laughs) and, you know, living out there interviewing Hollywood celebrities and you guys saw something in her and Mm -hmm. she saw something in y'all and her life changed. And and now agriculture, the West conservation is, is like her mission in life. And so, I mean, I guess first, first of all, can you just talk about the, the apprentice program? Yeah. So that started um, kind of, kind of in the early years. And again, this was kind of before my time. They're all my good friends now, the early apprentices. I was 12 and 13, I guess, and they were all in their early 20s, and I still keep in touch with them now. Um, And it wasn't formalized back then, but but the idea is getting um, young young people into the industry. For all the reasons we talked about earlier, agriculture is very closed. So if you didn't grow up on a property or in a community, chances are there's going to be a lot of closed doors you're going to find. Um, So kind of creating creating that opportunity um, for young people to um, maybe not even not necessarily get into the business um, of ranching, but at least be able to see it mm-hmm. firsthand experience in the case of Becca, you know, come out, like you said, from a, not a different world, but a different universe <laughs> um, and come out here and, and start as a, as an intern, you know, and, and you're shown the, 
it's not like your typical internship of getting coffee. Our equivalent would be like getting coffee or making copies or going to the mailroom or something. Our equivalent's like mowing lawns, taking out trash, fixing fence. And, and, and ranching is very hierarchical where someone for the first few years, I have, I have friends on places. All he did was like poison gophers for the first four years of his ranching career. Yeah. Um, so you start at the very bottom and very slowly and, and we're not like that at all. Our, our hierarchy, we do have a hierarchy cause you have to have a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very much like top to bottom connected. I take out the trash. I mow lawns. I do, I do everything that our interns, our apprentices, our managers, our foreman, everyone does the same stuff. Um, and the cool part about that is someone can come in a relatively short amount of time and get a full exposure, um, to ranching sure. and, and not the, not the shit work of ranching, but moving cattle and graze planning and, and like the fun parts of ranching mm-hmm. that, that camaraderie on a ranch, you know, there's like cowboys and there's camaraderie there, but they don't really talk with the mechanic or anything like yeah. that. You yeah. know, it's just kind of weird. So here everyone's friends. It's, it's like a big extension of family. Um, we live together, we, we work together, we recreate together. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's just this really cool kind of sharing educational, um, thing. And, and I learned from them too. Um, someone like, like Brandon, um, who's with us now, he started as an intern at the Zapata. Okay. Finished school, came back as an intern and then quickly realized that he wanted to, he doesn't know if he wants to manage a ranch per se, but he knows that he wants to, manage land in Uh some capacity and having a ranching background to manage land, I think is huge because ranchers are the original kind of conservationists. Oh yeah. Um, but, but he worked on a tree farm for two years in college. So I'm like texting Brandon, Hey, have you ever worked with one of these tree spades or how big a tree? Like ask him questions like that. Cause that's out of my world. Sure. Um, but something that he's very comfortable with. So it's, it's this really cool kind of sharing of, of, um, culture, knowledge, um, background everything like that it's, it's a really neat thing so when you're thinking about you've been doing this for for a while and we were talking about this a bit before we started recording and, and you've you've got the the hiring process pretty dialed in mm-hmm. and it, and so what do you look for because it's obviously not i want somebody with ranching experience yeah no. i mean what is what are the, kind of the, the core yeah. personality traits you're looking for um Let's see. That's a good question. the the easy The easy thing to start with is um, physical labor, some mm-hmm. kind of physical labor. Um, it doesn't have to be anything with ranching or fencing, but um, in Brandon's case, working on a tree farm sure. that, that qualified him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a lot of times, it's like working at a horse barn, mucking stalls, or or landscaping through college. You know, something something that says they work with their hands, lifted some heavy stuff, used some hand tools, sure, worked outside in the elements. That that's a big one um, for us because a lot of it, ninety percent of it, is outside. Yeah. Um, so that that's huge. Um, riding experience helps, but mm-hmm. it's not not mandatory. Brandon zero riding experience. Really? Yeah, zero. Um, Becca had riding experience. Yeah. Um, so that you hit both ends of the spectrum there. Um, and then and then kind of a the the thing that we've struggled with a little bit still is. Um, is people who studied agriculture in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times that's a little bit difficult because they come in with um, maybe overconfident in their abilities because yep. they, they took a class on beef production or something, you know, one, one five month class and now they know it. Um, even though, you know, maybe they know the terminology, which helps, but it doesn't really work like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of tough. Cause you almost have to tell them like, forget what you learned and we're going to start over. 
Um, not to say none of their information they learned is useful. It's just kind of, you just nearly kind of need to reboot because that stuff to learn a lot of that stuff, you need to, um, do it repetitively and, and building on top of itself. Mm -hmm. So taking one class as a junior or something, it doesn't really set, set you apart. So that's, that's one thing that's kind of tough. Is it, so just thinking about that, is it, is it like a humility you're looking for? Because, you know, you're obviously super humble. And I think, I think having this, you know, taking these courses, but, but coming in here and being like, look, I'm here to learn, not look, I'm a no, I, I know everything. Yeah. Some, someone who, who, what what we want is we don't want someone to know Lewis is just starting and, and we were helping a friend, um, a neighbor work in his field. And I took the opportunity to kind of talk with Lewis and, and just quiz him, you know what? And, and I really like Lewis. I, I think he has a lot of potential and he doesn't know anything, mm-hmm. anything at all, but he's very eager to tell you that. Mm-hmm. So you say, Lewis, can you weld? He said, Oh, I, I took a little class and I can kind of stick pieces together, but so yes and no, which is a perfect answer. Sure. Cause then I can kind of, at least I know he has the idea of weldings used to stick metal together. At least yeah. he knows that. And then you can go from there. Did you ride a horse, Lewis? He said, I didn't, I didn't ride at all until I got to college and was part of this, um, color guard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rode there, but that's mostly walking around parade style. So then you know, whereas you get sometimes people say, Oh, I can rope and I can ride and I can do this. And, and, and then you, and then you see it and you're just like, man, like not at all, not, not even close, but they think they can. So already that's a disadvantage. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it is kind of that humble, um, humility, um, looking, looking to learn and get the fullest, um, experience that they can while they're here. Um, longevity is one thing we're trying to stay, we're trying to push our internship to a six month internship, um, that leads into an apprenticeship. So we're trying to okay. find apprentices, um, because the three month interns really tough because they right at three months, they start figuring out which way is up. Yeah. You finally get yeah. it or start to get it. Yeah. And, then you and, then, and then they're gone and, and it, it doesn't bode that well for us or for them because they, they're just scratching the surface at three months. Um, so we're trying to do a six month and then turn that into a, a four to six year thing. Oh, wow. Um, cool. So they, they keep progressing through the ranks. So Jake is, is our, our ranch foreman here. Started as an intern, um, finished school at school of the mines. He has a degree in, um, uh, environmental engineering mm-hmm. from mines. Um, came back, started as an apprentice, um, worked his way up and up and up. And now he is the foreman of this ranch. He manages all the day to day stuff. So he has apprentices under him. He has interns under him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the idea is the, the interns come, um, turn into apprentices. The apprentices turn and manage the interns. Okay. And then they, and then they keep progressing and learning how to manage people in these positions that they were in six months ago or a year ago. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a big thing. It's kind of, um, that humble kind of willingness to learn. And then, and then the other thing is we try to have as many of our crew talk to these people because we live together, we work together, we recreate together. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to fit in. They, yeah. they, they have, they might be the most qualified person, but if there's, if they're moody in the mornings, not going to work. Sure. Um, if they have a temper, um, we can work around it to a point, but they have to be willing to work on it or it's not going to work. Because uh, as soon as you get one one person that doesn't really fit in, it just starts fracturing. Oh, it'll poison. Yeah. It'll, it's unbelievable yeah. what one bad person yeah. could do it, to a and group. And it's so quickly. It's <laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah. 
There's this, you know, Ernest Shackleton. You, oh, yeah. you read, there's yeah. that book, The Endurance. The, the lesson I remember from that is there was one guy in that whole crew that had a bad attitude. Right. And Shackleton was like, this guy's never leaving my side. Yeah. And Shackleton slept next to him because yeah. he was like, this guy's not yeah, going to poison Because one thing is that all those guys die. Oh yeah, but, but I mean he it, did what he did and saved him. <laughs> um, so think this is going to be hard because you you won't you refuse to to brag on yourself. <laughs> but when you think about so I mean you're you're the leader around here and mm-hmm. you're and so thinking about when you sh- came out here, what did you say, 2010? Um, Back from school? Yeah, yeah. I came. I graduated in 2010 and then was here for um, eight months or something. Then went to Australia. Australia. Yeah. So just thinking about your kind of evolution as a leader. Mm-hmm. What what have you learned about how to set that good tone? I mean, like like maybe something when you were twenty twenty two twenty three. If you're anything like me, you're maybe a little bit uh, full of yourself yeah, or full of it. Overconfident. Yeah. And yeah. so, what like thinking about yourself as a leader now, having been out here for as long as you have, what mm. what are the leadership lessons you think that you've you've developed personally? Yeah. And I think Australia is actually a really good um, experience for me from that perspective because then. If you work under a good leader, it's great. You learn a lot, but I think you learn more working under bad leaders. Yes. Um, especially if you can identify the good qualities and the bad. Um, but I work for a lot of good people in Australia and I look, f- work for some really, really bad people in Australia. And I think, um, learning that and, and seeing how the operations and the, and the crews functioned under good leadership and why they mm-hmm. did is something I was kind of, constantly always evaluating mm-hmm. and seeing and, and trying to navigate without intervening. Cause, sure. Cause I was at 24 or something. I was one of the older people on a lot of these crews I worked on. So try, trying to like be in the shadows and, and not jump in and fix things. Cause it wasn't my place. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd been here and confident and not a manager here, but I guess somewhat of seniority. Cause I know it knew everything so well growing up here and, and, and having ability because I grew up here and everything and then going to this foreign place where I'm, I'm older. So I don't fit in automatically. I'm foreign. So I don't fit in number yeah. two. Um, but not, but not wanting to kind of interject myself. So just seeing these things happen where it's very clear mistake. That's going to have big problems, but like sitting back and having to, because it, it wasn't my place. And I think that was really beneficial for me just to kind of see all that and, and, um, get in, get entwined in all of the good and the bad. And, and the biggest thing I think for leadership, um, and, and interaction between anyone is communication. Um, if you can't communicate, it's, you, you cannot function as a leader, I don't think. And, and you can't expect the same results out of your people if you can't communicate what you want, how you want it, why it's not getting done how good they're doing. They're doing a better job. You just have to communicate all the good and the bad. And is that equal parts content? Like you got to be clear about what you want, but how much does tone oh, to huge. tone fit into that? Yeah, I think, I think it's huge. And, and often you have a, a tendency to only communicate when something's bad or something's not going right, because when something's going good, you don't spend time thinking on it a lot of times, yeah. but, but actually stepping in and, 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 like Brandon was welding the other day and, and going in there and checking on him. He's never welded before and he's learning project and going in and, 
and he's got a lot of really bad welds, but he's got two really good welds and, and kind of commending him on them and, and, and talking to him like, well, how, how did you, what were you doing when you did this and what mm-hmm. changed and were these first or, and just kind of talking to him and, and he knows he's not welding well, cause you can see it. Sure. And, but, but he also knows that he did two good ones. So kind of building him up on that and keeping that kind of, um, lighthearted, um, where, where the majority of the project's bad, but there's some really good in it too. And, and focusing on the, on the really good parts of it. Yep. Cause the really bad, it's all going to hold and it's going to be fine. Sure. Um, so I think, I think tone is massive. Tone and timing, um, would be a big part of it. Um, you know, obviously you've got all this real world experience, but thinking about Shackleton and, and I mean, are there any, any kind of heroes or mentors or people you read about like in the leadership or agriculture side of things that you've admired, you don't have to know them, but some yeah. of the people that you've admired from a distance and just been like, you know, that that's kind of the, what I'd like to be like. Yeah. One day. There's, there's several people. Um, the, the obvious and clear one is my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, I, I think a lot of the stuff I was too young or whatever kind of took for granted. And the older I get, the more I realize, um, um, kind of how much he shaped me without like hands on physically shaping me and yeah. do this, do this, do this, but kind of having this open, um, open communication, you know, and always positive reinforcement, all that. It's huge. And I didn't realize at the time, very much realize it now, especially working with young people Yeah. and looking back at all the mistakes I made, like, man, I screwed up a lot, but <laughs> I didn't hear about it. I knew I'd screwed up, but it's not like it was like hammered in you know sure it would have been if i'd continued making the same mistakes but i didn't because he said you made a mistake this this is what happened this is what you should have done and and do that and that's it yeah and i don't make those mistakes anymore so he's a huge one um personally um in the business sense kind of broad overview everything like that yeah um the lassiter family i didn't i didn't know um tom senior very well but looking at what he created um with his cattle herd but just his whole management philosophy is is so far out there from anything that had been done before and and still today is 70 years ago or something it's crazy because it's still out there now so you think about i mean with the internet and information free flowing and it's still on that kind of tail yeah um and so you think about what innovator he must have been yeah, what, it, 70 years it's ago. It's incredible. Yeah. It, it's a, it's, it's not like it happened, you know, 10 years ago and, and it's a bit behind technology. It happened a long time ago mm-hmm. and, and it's very successful. And, and I think it lends itself not just to cattle, but just this whole perspective of keeping things simple and, and, and not, not focusing in on the minutia that's not going to have this great return in your financial books or personally, you know, just, just approaching it with this really broad, open perspective, which is huge. Um, and then another person is someone who I've kind of gotten close with over the last known him for a long time, but, um, gotten close with over the last three years, probably he's a neighbor, Mm -hmm. um, just over here, Tracy toll. And, and he, um, He's from Kentucky. He's one of the funniest people I know. <laughs> Kentucky breeds oh, hilarious yeah. people. <laughs> He's so funny. Like backwoods, um, grew, grew up on a dirt floor, you know, no indoor plumbing. Really? Yeah. Just, just. How old is he? I uh, just turned 50. Wow. Um, in November, I think. Um, but he's hard scrabble. He, he had a bit of a rough patch in 2007, got in got in some trouble and and um kind of i don't know if maybe he'd tell you hit rock bottom i don't really know but he he 
he got out, um, did his time, and he got out, I think, in 2007 or eight, something like that, and and has just busted his ass like he That's wouldn't awesome. believe. And and he worked. He's he's the best mechanic I know, from gas engines all the way up to the biggest bulldozer they make. You really? know, the guy's brilliant. Um, learned it all from. Never went to school. I don't know if he graduated high school or anything, mm-hmm. but just very smart guy. And um, now he's farming. I think probably close to probably close to 2,500 acres of hay by himself with um, a couple young, young people that he's teaching. (laughs) So he's just, he's just this powerhouse and he's, and there's no, there's no hurdle you can put in front of him that he won't, he'll probably try to go through it first. I need to get him on this podcast. (laughs) But then he's going over the top around it, under it, however it's happening, you know, he'll face this adversity and he just gets through it and he's always positive and, and, He's he's just gotten this other farm lease down here and and it's hasn't been maintained for thirty years and uh-huh. it's like every other week one of his pipes will rot out and his pivot will collapse and that's a big thing a yeah. pivot collapsing and you go down there the next day and they'll have it back together really he'll he'll cut it weld two pipes together figure it out and it's back together and he does it all um, with these young young kids or old retirees he's always looking to help people out mm-hmm. he goes to breakfast every morning in in town and and there's another friend old ernie who introduced me to him he's 80 88 years old wow. and tracy just befriended him ernie's bored he's he's worked his whole life he's from trinidad originally uh-huh. and and he'll go out and help tracy mow lawns or just ride around with him in the pickup so he's just got this really kind of um caring mentality um, and he's the busiest person in the world, but somehow he makes time for it. So it's just a lot of really admirable things about him. You mentioned in describing him that he's positive. And then before we start recording, you and I were just talking about the importance of being positive. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that just from maybe a leadership perspective and then also from a, from just a team perspective? And then is that your natural disposition or do you force yourself to be positive or somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I think now – I guess I'll start from the back and work forward, but I think my natural disposition is more negative. Yeah. Um, especially when I was younger and that's a big thing my, my dad would kind of harp on because I think he was the same thing. Mm-hmm. He had a bit of a temper when he was younger. I, I had one, but nothing near like what I heard he had. Um, and, and now it, I don't know why, but it takes a lot to get, get me fired up or hot or it just, it doesn't happen anymore. Um, and I think Australia again was a big thing where you get, I had a a good friend over there who I should have mentioned another kind of, um, person I look up to, but you'd have just like shit hitting the fan, like big time where you spent two days gathering 40,000 acres and you have 8,000 head that you're supposed to bring in and you have constraints because your monsoon season's coming. And if you don't get them done, then it's like big deal. And, and we'd blow them, you know, something would happen and, and they're gone and, and days of work and four helicopters and 20 people for working for two or three days. It's just gone. Gone. And he's like, well, we'll start again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. They're like, and to have that mindset, um, is something that I really brought back, um, well, you realize it's wasted energy getting so damn yeah, mad because I was the same way. Anything about I, it. <laughs> it sounds like we're wired very similarly, and um, I just I've learned not through ranching, but you know, in like mountaineering trips. Yeah, there were a few. You know, you, I would get so mad about stuff like i'd make some mistake or one time i dropped my puffy pants off a three thousand foot cliff <laughs> and i just got started like 
literally like beating the shit out of my backpack. Right. And then look, I look back on that. I'm like, man, it's you're like, such what an was idiot. I, doing? Yeah. Like, I need my energy. And there I'm expending it all right. in a backpack and, and looking screaming, like a, looking, looking like, like an idiot. Sissy yeah, yeah. Looking like a complete idiot. Yeah. And I mean, I'm so glad I'm out of that, but oh, it's, you kind of need to go through it. Yeah. If you're wired like we are, you need to go through that to yeah. be able to be embarrassed. And yeah. And it's like, man, what an idiot I am. And then you start seeing other people do it and you're like, what an idiot they are. Glad I don't do that anymore. I saw that yesterday. That's yeah. a guy in traffic, just furious. And I was oh, like, man, yeah. I feel bad. And he was probably 60 years old. Like, yeah. golly, yeah, 60 years of that? Temper thing. It's, it'll age you quick. Yeah. But, completely wasted. Yeah. The big thing, and you hear it a lot in songs, you know, like don't cry a tear for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Don't, don't cry for the past cause you'll drown tomorrow or uh-huh. something. You hear stuff like that all the time and it's, and it's a very simple concept, but it's really hard to actually kind of do to, to, it is. to be of, to be of that mindset and act in that mindset. Um, and I think that's a big part of being positive. You know, we're all going to make mistakes, um, and hopefully not the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is you can't really fix it once it's happened. You know, you, you blow 6,000 head into a big river bottom. You're not going to go like get an eraser and fix it real quick. Yeah. Change the number. You just start over the next day. So any, any energy wasted on the negative feelings about that, mm-hmm. it's good to acknowledge the problem and, and, and break it down from a, from a positive, you know, well, what do we do wrong so we can do it better? Mm-hmm. But to just say, well, this person messed up and he was in the wrong spot or this was too close, whatever it is, uh, it's not positive and it's not no. going to help you in the future. Um, so, so you're going to, you're going to be lost energy. You're going to, you're going to be more inefficient when it mm-hmm. comes around. Um, so kind of maintaining that kind of calm and working around livestock, man, you, you can get hot quickly. Oh yeah. For I would guess some so. reason they bring it out and you know, and you can see it in people. They start hitting them and screaming at them and running their horse up. And it's like, man, and now I'm just like, man, that's embarrassing for you. I feel sorry for you. And you all like of our fool. young people too, if they start seeing it, I'll pull them up and be like, calm down. Yeah. Like if, if we need to get them from A to B, if they, if they bend around to C, as long as they're still heading towards B, we're good. Doesn't, it's going to take 15 minutes longer, but it doesn't matter. It's not worth taking it out on them, taking it out on your horse, making everyone else around you uncomfortable mm-hmm. and looking like an idiot and getting exhausted over it. It's not worth it. Just let it go. I wonder how much of your evolution there is as you've you know worked your way up and now you're in charge. When you, when you got people watching you, mm-hmm. it makes it a lot more not easy, but important to, yeah. to set it. Cause that's what I found with my, just with my daughters. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want them to see their dad right. looking like some kind of lunatic right. getting real mad. Yeah. Cause I mean, I feel like this sounds like macho bullshit, but like getting mad is showing weakness. Oh yeah. And you, you know, the, I've heard, I'm kind of obsessed with Navy SEALs and they, they, there's this one guy that I read a lot of his books and he, he's always talking about if you get mad, you are, you are really showing your ass and you're showing weakness. Yeah. And if you, you know, that maybe talks more about my, about my insecurities and that I don't want people to see that I'm weak, but mm-hmm. it's, um, it really does. Yeah. It's not a positive thing. No. And it doesn't lead to anything good. And no. being a leader, that's yeah. the last thing you want. Yeah. And I, I think you, if, if you the kind of person that hauls off and gets pissed and maybe even not pissed at people, but yelling and running around and screaming and at stuff. The back, at your backpack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or your horse or cattle or saddle or whatever it is, you know? It, it's really hard, A, for people to have confidence in you. Yes. And, and, um, be kind of listen to you mm-hmm. and, and, um, 
and acknowledge you kind of as that as that authority mm-hmm. and see work with you. I don't like working with people like that. No. And and I worked with a lot of people like that. It's just not fun. Working cattle is a lot of fun. It, yeah. To me, it's like, it's almost my artistic outlet. Yeah. Mo- moving a herd of cattle and, and just the way that it all happens and, and done, done really well. It's just so fulfilling, which seems totally minute. Cause you think like cattle drive, like, yeehaw. <laughs> and to me, it's, it's just not like that. It, it's this it, like the minimum amount of people, the least amount amount of stress the quietest you can get them to move um, in the smoothest fashion all these things happening with live animals in large numbers on big scale it, it's it's huge um, and it's something that i i absolutely love so you get someone running around in there and screwing that up for me i, I don't like it <laughs> no that's yeah. wise i think that's a wise way to look at it yeah um, that's that's really good stuff i love hearing that yeah no that's cool you've definitely got a, a calm demeanor i mean i i'd seen you know interviews with you and before i got to know you and you you definitely project calmness so that i, I think so. that's yeah <laughs> I'm not very tightly wound. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, we're in, we're almost in an hour, which is crazy. Um, so I've got a few questions that I ask people, um, at the end and it's kind of cool to compare. Mm-hmm. So I maybe ask a few of those real quick. Um, when you think about, you know, your writing and your creative writing and I'm, I imagine you read, you've read a ton and, and probably still do read a ton. What are there any books that are your favorite about the American West in general? Mm. That's a tough one. Yeah, um, it's hard for me. I, I ask all these questions and I don't know the answers. I don't have yeah, the answers. <laughs> yeah. No. I, one time somebody turned around on me, they're like, "What do you think?" I'm really bad about um, names of books and authors and everything like that. There are there are a few of my go tos that I've read a lot of times. Really, like um, what's one or two of those? Um, Empire of the Summer. Oh Man. yeah, that's I really so good. like that. Um, just because it's a really raw. Um, and and I've heard varying that it's not 100% authentic or but there's probably some parts of it that are pretty real. Some of the stuff yeah. There's some scenes from that book that I think about all the time what uh what happened to some of those settlers yeah. and the way they were killed. Yeah. It's like, just brutal. And it's, and nature's brutal, which is interesting cuz you look at it and the Indian and Native Americans were so cruel, but nature's very cruel. It is. Um and they and they're yeah, we're all just kind of animals, and 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 seeing it really raw and and pure as as I perceive it to be, right or wrong, I guess it's, it's mm-hmm. that's really interesting for me. That's a really good one. Um, yeah. Any any others? That yeah, come to mind? I'm looking at my bookshelf trying to. Oh yeah, you got think a good bookshelf. Yeah, part of it. Um, there's an author. He's he lives down in Arizona now. Um, see, I can't. Jim Kane is his book, and it's 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 fiction but based off basically his life stories oh cool he's got one the outfit um and there's a forest of the night and i can't remember his name off the top of my head i'll, f- I'll find it yeah. i'll put links to it on the web page yeah and i'll find it as soon as we're done here but he's um he's incredible i think because it captures a lot of it's like the mundane parts of it like he's in jim kane he's a cattle buyer on the border of arizona and and um mexico and, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's like him driving around yeah and that's a cattle buyer's job is driving around to sure. these different places um, um so i really like that because it's it's kind of the un, unfiltered um view of of that person's life yeah. i think which is really cool um and then I, I read a lot of aviation books too. Oh, do you really? Yeah, that's something we didn't even get to talk about. Is <laughs> yeah. you fly everything? Yeah, I tried to. I yeah. mean, I was out here when I was out here the other day. I was just talking to you, mm-hmm. and then 
you walked off. And then next thing you know, there's this helicopter flying around. I look and you're in it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. How long have you been doing that? Um, I've been flying a helicopter for two, two almost two and a half years. Oh, I figured you'd been doing it for like no. 15 because the way no. you were flying that yeah. thing. No, I flew, um, I've flown fixed wings since 2012 or 13. Um, and it was kind of a funny, funny deal, but it, was, it started as a New Year's resolution. Helicopter. Oh, really? I'm like, man, that'd be really fun to do. And I, and I had a, this, this window coming up in, in March, the end of March, um, where I could go do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I get this wild idea and start obsessing over it. I'm like, man, I want to do this. So I started hitting the phones and calling people and saying, you know, I want to learn how to fly a helicopter. I can dedicate three weeks to it. Hundred mm-hmm. um, percent, you know. Can can we do it? And I think I got turned down by like seven flight schools. Oh, really? A because I'm too big. A lot of them are two hundred pound, two hundred ten pound uh, minimum, and I'm two twenty. Ah, uh. um, for these little helicopters. And B time frame, they're like, um, you know, three to five months minimum for a private rotor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I did fixed wing, I think, in six weeks or something as quickly as possible, and con- kind of dedicated to it hundred percent. So. I was hitting brick walls and brick walls and getting frustrated because it was February and I and my window's going to close at the end of March. So um, through an airplane mechanic friend, I met a guy at Meadow Lake who does all the um, helicopter work for CPW, Parks and Wildlife, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and Alaska in the summertime. And um, he and he told me to get in contact with his pilots, who's a who's a trainer in the wintertime in Thermal, California, outside of Palm Springs. Okay. So I called Adam up and and Adam and I are good friends now. He's like, yeah, it's going to be really hard, but I think we can do it. And he, and he said, have you thought about a commercial add on? And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. So mm-hmm. basically I, I went out to California. Um, I took my full camping setup, slept, slept in a hangar for three weeks. Really? Yeah. And I think I knocked it out in 22 days. So it took one day longer than three weeks. <laughs> um, but, and then skip private. So I actually have a commercial rating in helicopter, which wow. is cool if I ever have time to fly for someone. But, That's really cool. Yeah. So, it, and it, and then it's kind of changed our operation. We bought a, a cheap used little R22 and, and I use it for checking water, checking fence. If we have water gaps, I'll shuttle people down fixing fence so we don't have to drive on the mud. Um, I'll move cattle with it. Uh, and, and a lot of people think it's um, helicopter, loud, cattle running everywhere, hectic. But um, it's, a, it's a funny thing because every every animal has their flight zone, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you go to that zone until they move off your pressure, and that, that is effectively their flight zone. Oh, okay. So so you have a flight zone on foot, on horseback, motorcycle, airplane, helicopter. Mm-hmm. So, so I move them the same way that I would move on a horse, but I'm like half a mile off. Wow. So you go and get them moving, then you just back off and they'll move in. So you could move, you can move pairs, you know, without a single animal bawling because you're not there pushing them along. You just, you're in the background basically moving. They probably don't even really know that. Yeah. that so they don't even really pushing. know they're moving. Yeah. You just get them going towards water and then they're at water and you kind of get them off that. And it, it's been huge, especially down in New Mexico, that big um, rough ranch down there. Um, we can, we can do work in a day that would take you know a month to do that's I, crazy I just trailer it down there and we do it and it's low stress and easy it's great I that's love so it. cool and it's a lot of fun <laughs> i'm glad you mentioned it because that was one of the things i wanted to ask you i'd forgotten about it because yeah. seeing you buzzing around in that thing yeah. that looks like fun it's right? a lot of fun it's, it's funny you get a lot of looks and, and people 
a lot of people don't know much about it, so you get a lot of assumptions kind of passed off on you, but it, it's another tool for us. Well, that's, again, it shows yeah. that you guys are out on, you know, when you think about the bell curve, you guys are out on the far end doing your own thing, yeah. which is awesome. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking about all your experiences in the outdoors and internationally, and when you think about all those collectively, is there is there one that comes to mind as kind of being the, your most powerful outdoor experience? And that could be, you got the shit scared out of you, you know, funny, or just, you know, what, however you define powerful. But is there one experience that comes to mind as like, wow, that was that was yeah. intense? I think the, the biggest thing for me was working in a contract mustering gathering camp in Australia. Okay. I was, I was one of a seven-man crew. Um, the, the head of that crew, was he's now a really close friend of mine down there. He's a year younger than me, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and just seeing uh, the way that crew interacted, and, and he went from um, very knowledgeable, um, useful people to the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, and, and just seeing how how a crew like that was able to and not to get things done, why it worked mm-hmm. and why it didn't. And seeing all that really close firsthand for eight months. Mm-hmm. We, I lived in a camp basically for eight months, worked cattle every day. Wow. That. You know, you'd work six or eight weeks without a day off and then have three days off and wake up at four in the morning with nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that was huge for me. Um, I think it really honed my abilities as a stockman, just getting in, 60,000 head over that eight months, Mm -hmm. you know, working on them from gathering to um, processing them through facilities. Um, And just seeing it on that scale um, is something that's very unique, I think, and and that consistent. Yeah. Um, And I think that was like, I don't know if it's quite an aha moment, but like an aha era for me. I came back and and the problems here that like, oh, we, we missed this gate or something. They're so small. And and it, it just kind of came back from that un, unfazed by most things. Did uh, you like it when you were over there or was it – yeah. Was it just kind of a, I mean, did you enjoy yeah. it while you were there or is I it the kind it. of thing you did? <laughs> yeah. For the most part, 90, 98% of it. I loved it. That's cool. Yeah, Especially in that, that part of it. Some other parts before I, I didn't love just because I was working for certain people that yeah. just weren't a fit. Um, but that part of it, I really liked. And it was hard. Long days, you're up at three thirty, four o'clock, you know, and, and the station was 1.7 million acres. So if you're working cattle on the other side, that's two hour drive to get there. That is so yeah. big. <laughs> yeah. So you get there in the dark and then you're waiting for helicopters and all this stuff. And then it comes in, but then you're catching wild cattle and it was, it was just a lot of fun. Um, it was hot. It was long. Um, if you say it's hot, that means it's hot because oh, it it's hot. hot around here. <laughs> yeah, like you'd wake up and you'd be sweated through your shirt in the dark. It was hot. Yeah, <laughs> I think those those kind of experiences, you know, where you are just – if you can have this purpose in the community, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter doesn't what matter. you went through. You don't remember that. Yeah, you don't remember. You remember it fondly, if anything. Like, yeah, you crave it. That sucks. It was awesome. <laughs> have you read Tribe by Sebastian Younger? Uh-uh. I'm going to get it for Good you. One. It is. It, he talks about. I talk about it incessantly on this yeah. podcast. I'm sure people are sick of hearing me talk about it. But he talks about these guys that go over to war in Afghanistan or Iraq, and then they mm-hmm. get home and they miss it, mm-hmm. and they want to go back, and they don't understand why they want to go back because it's you know so hard. Their life's on the line, but it's because over there they have purpose and they have community. Yeah, there and, and like then they come here. Yeah, they come. Then they go and they move into a one bedroom apartment right. in the suburbs. And they're an island. Yeah. Yep. And it, it, we're not built for that as a, we're, an, no. you know, the only thing we have going for us as animals is we're smart and we can team up. Right. 
Yeah. And, I mean, otherwise we're pretty worthless. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard. Like a lot, I think a lot of people don't really get that true sense of camaraderie like that, that you get from living and working and like cooking and cleaning all that stuff together. It's all good and bad. Like it's, it's hot as shit and it's not going well, but you're not the only one there. Everyone's yeah. going through it and it, and it kind of builds you up and makes the whole thing strong. Well, and that's what y'all are doing here. That's yeah. exactly what you're doing yeah, here. Which is, which is really cool. Cause you know, you're not, you're not the only intern out mowing the lawn, you know, and, hundred degrees there's a lot of people out there doing it with you um so it's, you'll, you'll so it's not a bad book. experience yeah that and it's like 150 pages so you can Sweet. crank through it it's, yeah. it's really good oh, um kind of last last big question um this would be interesting where is your favorite spot in the west because this place is awesome zapata is awesome yeah i mean or it could just be like a alpine lake that nobody knows about yeah no this the chico would be it um, mm-hmm. this ranch and, and there's a few specific places on this ranch that every time I'm there, I'm like, man, this, this is a really nice spot that, yeah. and I keep them kind of to myself and they're not what everyone else would pick as being the mm-hmm. most picturesque spots here, you know, down by the lake or by the trees or they're not that at all. Um, we just, I just got married. Uh, I got married in November, but I had our party in June and, and I had to fight for it. But the spot that I picked is one of my spots and, oh, cool. and people want to come out here and, and do bell park because it's, there's cottonwood trees mm-hmm. and it's shade and all this stuff. But to me, it, it's, it's a beautiful spot, but it's not authentic to not only the ranch, but the region that we live in and all the reasons why I love it here. Um, which is you can I can see out I can see to New Mexico I can see the, the Palmer Divide I can see you can just see you can see mm-hmm. weather coming weather going and all this stuff and so we had it up on this big hill and and finally you know I got the tent set up and everything up there and everyone's like I I see it now I'm like that's what I've been telling you <laughs> like, this, this is cool this this is why we this is why we're here this mm-hmm. is why I love it here so much um, and and again I didn't really realize how much I loved it here until I left. And I, I think the mountains are great in Colorado, and everyone thinks Colorado, they think mountains, which is great because they don't all come, come to right eastern here. Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you can't see out in the mountains. You can't see the change coming. Um, you can't You can't see anything going. You just, you just have this big, wide perspective here. Um, there's no shade. There's, like, there's no safety almost, which ah, is kind of cool. It's intense. Yeah, and, and I really like that. I, I like being able to see not, you know, a mountain or a mountain – um, group, but like a whole range. Mm-hmm. You can see the wet mountains. You can see the Sangre. You can see all the way up to Pikes. You can see, uh, you can just see forever here, which is which is really cool. There's no there's no hiding anything, mm-hmm. uh, which is something kind of pure and raw about it. Um, so I, southeastern Colorado, I, I love it. We're we're on the northern end of southeastern Colorado, I'd say, but um, the further south you go, it's just great. There's there's so much down there that. People are starting to find out about now yeah. Red Rock Canyons, Bighorn Sheep. It's amazing. It's been there forever. It's just starting to be a hot topic. Um, it's a, it's an incredible place. Well, I really admire what y'all are doing out here and, and doing all over the state. And um, again, you're you're humble, so I'll say it. Your your yeah. family's being honored at uh, the Southern Colorado Conservation Awards in a few weeks. So we're excited to. I'm excited to see you there. Yeah, we and, can't uh, wait. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. But again, I appreciate your time and and everything y'all are doing. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media and or 
go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.